Lord, you are aware of the heart condition of each one of us tonight in this place, of each person who is listening by radio, each person who will get this tape eventually. You know us all so intimately. You know what we want. More than that, you know what we need. And we ask that you would give to us based upon what you know we need at this point, this week, for such a time as this. Lord, so often your gifts are dependent upon our willingness to receive them. So I pray that our hearts would be wide open to you tonight. We would let you in. We would let your spirit take the bread of life, the word of truth, and nourish our souls with it. And draw us to that place of deep satisfaction and commitment. And Lord, I pray that you would cause our minds to retain what we learn and our hearts to rejoice in what we are taught by your Spirit. For you gave us the command, learn of me. And I pray that as we do that tonight, we would get a little more insight into your character and be a little more willing to trust you with our future. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years back, I had the opportunity to go uh, back east. I was on the 700 Club, and while we were back in Virginia Beach, we said, you know, we've got a day. Let's cruise up the coast. So we went to um, some of the old settlements in America, Jamestown, and saw the reenactments where they would don the costumes and have the cannons and the muskets and You could go to a restaurant and eat the kind of food that they ate over 200 years ago, and we thought, gosh, this is so cool. I mean, I just loved all that stuff. And I was thinking back, you know, of of how old we are as a nation. You know, you think, wow, you know, we're a couple hundred years old. Wow. It's old. That year, I had the opportunity to go over to Israel. We've been there 16 times. And then you stand and you look at the stones of the temple around Jerusalem or the amphitheater in Caesarea. As they tell you, this thing is about 2,000 years old. And then you think 200 years compared to 2,000 years old. Or you stand in Jerusalem and you look down at the stones in the lower strata of the archaeological digs. Herod the Great stones are up here and Solomon's stones are underneath it. So you think, wow, 2,800 years, wow. It starts boggling the mind. You come back home to America and you think, oh, we're not that old. You know, you want to see an antique, you go over to Israel. Jesus comes now to Jericho, what is considered to be the oldest city in the world. The oldest city in the world. We know, and there's good evidence, you can see it over there today, archaeological evidence, that the city was well inhabited around 3000 B.C. So now you're going back 5,000 years. There's evidence that it was occupied during and even before that time. So the oldest city, in fact, if you're going through Jericho, it will say, you know, have Arabic and Hebrew and then English. Welcome to Jericho, the oldest city on earth. And so Jesus comes to the oldest city on earth, the first city conquered by Israel as they came into the land and crossed over the Jordan River. And the walls of Jericho miraculously fell down. In ancient times, it was well watered. It was called the city of the palms, sort of like Palm Springs, California. This is Palm Springs in Israel. The city of palms. Well-watered, Genesis 13 says, like the garden of the Lord. Only 6.4 inches of rainfall fall in Jericho every year. Yet there is a spring called Elisha's spring. You remember in the Old Testament, the spring that came up that yielded bitter water, and Elijah threw his rod in it, and it turned sweet, and it says the spring is still there to this day across from the Old Testament city of Jericho, where the hill is where they have dug, 
is the spring of Elisha, still one of the strongest underground water sources in that part of the world. And uh, it's a beautiful oasis. It was a great place to hang out in the winter. It's about 740 feet below sea level, which isn't too bad. It's warm in the summer, but uh, not as warm as the Dead Sea, which you can see from Jericho, 1,300 feet, 1,300 feet below sea level. So it gets really hot there. But nonetheless, Jericho is a, a very pleasant place to hang out. Last week, we met Bart, the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, the guy who hung out at the gate every day at Jericho, begging. And he heard that Jesus was coming to town, and Jesus touched him. Now we meet Zach, a short guy in Jericho, a tax collector. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. Most tax collectors were. The chief tax collectors were even richer than just the average tax collector. And he sought to see who Jesus was. But he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste, or hurry up, and come down, for today I must stay at your house. There's a lesson right off the bat I don't want to miss concerning Zacchaeus. Not that he was short and that God loves short people, because we know that to be true. But there is a lie that the devil perpetuates. And a lot of people have fallen victim to it. There might even be some here tonight who have thought that. That God is out to get you. That God is looking for you to mess up so that he can point his judgmental finger at you and zap you. Well, verse 10 will wipe all of that out because concerning Zacchaeus, he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. There's no such thing as somebody who is too bad to be saved. Now, I've met some people who think they're too good to be saved. I don't need that. That's for bad people. I don't need to get any closer to God than I am. I'm good enough. What are you preaching to me for? Those are hard people to reach. Religious people are tough people to reach. They think they know it all, they've got it all. Don't talk to me, man. You can be too good to be saved, but you can never be too bad to be saved. We should always be open to any kind of person. Zacchaeus would have been considered somebody too bad to be saved. An Orthodox Jew would have said, No hope. The guy's a slime ball. He's a tax collector. Tax collectors were raided among adulterers and murderers. I got a little note today. Um, it was from the Agape box last week somebody put in. Of course, it's unsigned. And it said, um, make sure that Skip gets this. Um, it said, I noticed that punk rockers are coming to this church, people with long hair, and, um, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't have any mark on you, and... Then it said, please pray that God would bring some decent people. <laughs> hey, I pray God brings all the undecent people. <laughs> May God shut us down when you have to fit into a mold or a dress code or a hair code. I, I want... Everyone to come and feel accepted and loved. Challenged by the gospel? Yes. But loved. I remember one time on the radio, somebody called and complained about some of the people that were coming here and the long hair. And um, they, they actually said to me, um, I, exactly how they phrased it, but, but you know, we, we, when are you going to start looking like Christians? And I asked, let me ask you something. What does a Christian look like? Like goofy wingtips, <laughs> geeky tie, a real buzz cut and a huge Bible big enough to choke a mule. Is that a Christian? 
Well, if that's it, I don't want to look like it. How you look is irrelevant. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Now, here's Zacchaeus, short little rich tax collector, living in Palm Springs, Israel, despised by all the people around him. Oh, he had the bucks. Why did he have the bucks? He was a tax collector. Being a tax collector was done by tax farming. The Roman government gave you a district. They assessed the value. A person would buy that area, and he was allowed to tax based upon the assessment plus whatever he could get away with. And the rest he would line his pockets with. It was pure profit. Now, from one district to the other, people didn't know what other people were charging necessarily because they, there wasn't any newspapers, there weren't any uh, television programs or radio broadcasts, CNN wasn't around. The internet wasn't up yet. And so people were victims of charlatans who had paid the Roman government an amount, they would take the tax, give the government some, and keep the rest. Hey, the taxes were bad. First of all, there was the poll tax, which meant if you breathe, you must pay. That's what the poll tax was. Every person, if you were a male, you paid tax when you were 14 years old until 65 years old. It was a certain tax to live. If you were a girl from age 12, you paid tax because you mature quicker than boys up to age 65. So you got to pay longer. There was the income tax, a flat 10% of all you made. There was the ground tax, a tenth of all your grain, a fifth of all your wine. There was the cart tax. You were taxed on how many wheels your cart had. One, two, four. Different roads had taxes. Bridges had taxes. Harbors, like the huge, magnificent harbor in Caesarea built by Herod the Great, all had separate taxes. And the tax collectors were making a bundle. So this man was despised by the people. In fact, they will murmur against Jesus for even hanging out with a guy like this. They probably wrote Jesus a note in his agape box. Pray that you get some decent people that will climb the trees here in Jericho. <laughs> Don't you dare give up on people that you have thought are hopeless. You know, I bet some of you, if I were to interview your friends, wrote you off as hopeless. They thought, oh, that, forget, she'll never be saved. No way. She's so hardened to the gospel. I've met so many of you that were at one time very hardened to any prospect of God being in your life. I went to my high school reunion. They couldn't believe I was not only a Christian, but I was a pastor. They thought it was a joke. I'm pl you're playing a joke. Come on, what do you do? What do you really do? We know you don't do that. God never gives up on them. By the way, it's not your responsibility to save those hopeless people. Jesus never said, go into all the world and save everybody. He said, go into all the world and share the gospel. Leave the results up to him. The conviction is from the Holy Spirit. Don't you try to produce it. You just be a faithful witness and one who lives the truth. And let God take those seeds as they are sown. Okay. This guy was a tax collector. He sought to see who Jesus was. He had obviously heard about him. But he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. I got to say that this guy, first of all, was a courageous tax collector. For him to show up in the crowd as Jesus was parading through Jericho took a lot of guts. Especially being short. I mean, think of what you would think if you hated the tax collector and you see him standing next to you in a crowd of other Jewish people who also hate him. And besides that, the guy's short. You've got a good chance. I mean, you could kick him. You could prod him. You could, you could be black and blue. Nobody would know. They couldn't see him. He's so puny. So this guy was courageous. And he was curious. 
I love curious people. I love truly honest questions. Even if they're difficulties people have about God and the Bible, I love getting into a conversation with somebody who is truly curious and honest. What I don't like is questions that are couched with some ulterior motive. And you can tell, why are you asking a question like that? For what reason? What are you trying to get at? But he was genuinely curious as to who Jesus Christ was. He was short, so he was also very inventive. He climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Jesus came to that place, looked up, and saw him. And for some reason, of course, this was a divine appointment, Jesus stopped. Here is Zacchaeus thinking he is seeking Jesus, and he finds out in reality Jesus is seeking him. People say, I'm looking for God. God's not lost, folks. Truth is, God is looking for you. God said to Adam after Adam fell, Adam, where are you? Adam Adam didn't say, where's God? The Bible says no one seeks God, no, not one. God is seeking after Zacchaeus. So Jesus stops, looks up. (laughs) Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. I love it. Jesus invites himself over for lunch. He's my kind of guy. I think I'm going to start doing that. I mean, it's in the Bible. I'll take this as my proof text. Uh, Stranger things have been done, so why not? He says, I must stay at your house. So he made haste, came down, and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all murmured, saying, He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. There's the note in the box. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, (laughs) this guy's got guts. Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now, I think there's a beautiful picture of the kind of relationship that Jesus is interested in. Intimacy, relationship. He said, get down, we're going to go eat lunch. Where? Your place. I want to come into your home. Invite me into your home, Zacchaeus. You know, get a hint. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come into him and sup with him, dine with him, and he with me. Because, as most of you know, eating in the Middle East was always a picture of intimacy, the closest, most intimate kind outside of The marriage relationship, just the friendship relationship of eating, sharing a meal that would nourish two separate bodies, denoted intimacy. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And then Paul in the book of Ephesians says, he prays, I pray that Christ may dwell in your heart richly by faith. Literal translation, that Jesus may settle down and make himself feel at home in your hearts. Is that the kind of relationship you have? Are you at ease when Jesus is around? Do you live the kind of a life, have the kind of a conversation, look at the kind of pictures, are engaged in the kind of activities that you're not ashamed to have Jesus in? Or do you get tense whenever Jesus is around? I think the Lord wants a natural, warm relationship. It seems, I've met some people, it seems like they're tense when God is around. You listen to the way they pray, they're tense and excited and sucking wind and it's just real intense. Yet they don't talk like that, you know, normally. They don't come home and go, honey, how are you? Where's the dinner? Yet they're around God and it's like they pray that way. I think, man, they must not feel comfortable hanging out with God. I think Jesus wants inspiration rather than perspiration any day. Be yourself. Relax in his presence that he might dwell intimately and be at home in your hearts. Zacchaeus, let's go over to your house and and they shared lunch. He made haste, received him joyfully. When they saw it, they being the crowd, the Pharisees, mixed bag no doubt, they all murmured saying he is gone to be 
guest with a man who was a sinner. He was a renowned sinner. A tax collector was excommunicated and barred from synagogue worship, even if he had a Jewish background. How many things have we stopped doing because we are afraid of what people will think? How many things... How many exploits for God have been cut short because of the fear of man? The fear of man brings the snare, the Bible says. I'm afraid of what people are going to think. You know what? You're never going to stand before another person. You're never going to have to stand before me for judgment, and I'm never going to have to stand before you. But we're all going to have to stand to give an account before God. And it seems no matter what thing you endeavor to do, In the Lord, or for the sake of the kingdom of God, there will be those who will murmur and complain, usually those who do nothing at all. They're just sour grapes. They use their hand for one thing, and that's pointing fingers. Pray for some decent people. Zacchaeus stood and said, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. Now, This is probably after the lunch, after whatever conversation. We don't know what transpired in the house. It must have been a great meal. kind of wish that was recorded. But Zacchaeus has changed. A sinner, yes. But untouchable, unreachable, absolutely not. Jesus spends some time with him, and the evidence that this guy has changed is right here. He's not saying, look, I want to get saved. I want to get right with you. This is the evidence that he has been changed. I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. Now, the law required that if you have stolen something from somebody, that you were to restore and add one-fifth, 20%. This guy's going way past what is required by the Mosaic law. Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. If I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore fourfold. Wow, four times. He's got a whole new heart, new appetites, new desires. Jesus said... To him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus seeks lost people. Jesus hasn't come to point fingers at them. Jesus has come to bring them in that they might be saved. And that should be, of course, our attitude around unsaved people. This should be the attitude of the Christian. To be an instrument. For Jesus to reach out because he is seeking for lost people. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. We've already talked about their eschatological view and their messianic view. And so let's read his parable. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants delivered to them ten minas, which is about three months' wages, and said to them, Do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. This is a very unique parable because it's a parable on one hand, but it's partially true on the other hand. It's not just a figment of the imagination or just a story to illustrate a truth. It's based upon an historical event. Let me tell you the event. When Herod the Great died, which was around 4 B.C., he entrusted his kingdom to his three sons, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herod Archelaus. And he said, I'll divide it among them. However... You couldn't just divide Roman territory by will. It had to be approved by Rome. Archelaus goes to Rome to appeal to Caesar Augustus to have the kingdom conveyed. He went to a far country seeking a kingdom. A delegation of 50 Jews from Jerusalem went over to Rome to protest the obtaining of the land by Herod Archelaus. But anyway... Augustus gave him the land, and he became the governor of a part of it. So it had a historical background. As Jesus is telling this parable, they're tracking with him. 
They remember it. It's fresh in their history, fresh in their memory. He sent a, citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Now, of course, Jesus is taking this and talking about himself. As they are seeking an immediate kingdom, he's speaking about their attitude toward him because that's the world's attitude toward Jesus. Okay, they'll say, Jesus, he's a nice guy, good prophet, all that jazz, but we're not going to let him reign over us. We're not going to have him as Lord. So it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Master, your mina has gained or earned five. Likewise, he said, You also be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. But I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did not you put my money in the bank? That at my coming I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even that which he has will be taken away. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. In verse 21, I'm interested in a couple of things. First of all, the, the perspective that some servants had of their master. And it's the perspective some people have of God. You know, one thought, okay, listen, God has put us in charge of a steward. He's entrusted gifts. He's entrusted this money. Let's use it for God's sake. Let's use it for the sake of the master. The master came back and said, hey, right on, man. Uh, I've got an interest on it. You've used it correctly. The other guy's view of his master was the view not of warmth, intimacy, love, but a view of a, a fearful slave toward a harsh master. And he was afraid to do anything. And there's a lot of people who picture God that way. They're afraid to do anything at all. They have such a warped idea of God. Now, God has entrusted you with certain things. God has entrusted you with a certain amount of finances. God has entrusted you with talents. God has entrusted you with spiritual gifts. What are you doing with them? Bottom line message here, use them or lose them. Are you using them? What you have, you don't own. You don't own your bank account. You don't own your house. You don't own your children. All of it is on loan by God to you for you to use for his glory. That's why we dedicate children, as Hannah did in the Old Testament. You say, well, no, it's mine. I give 10%. 10% belongs to God. I give 10% of all my income for the Lord's work. Well... Actually, he owns it all, not 10%. Every bit of it's his. All of it. He's given it to you on loan for you to use. You have an opportunity to invest with your money in spiritual things so that in heaven it will pay rich spiritual dividends. You have opportunities to use your talents for God's people to edify the body of Christ. You have an opportunity to use your spiritual gifts to enrich and edify other people, to spend and be spent to be addicted to the service of other people. You can do that. You can use it or you can lose it. That's really the thrust of this parable. And we should serve him, of course, instead of out of a slavish fear, out of a loving heart. 
Verse 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Ah, this has been his destination all along. He told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and to Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. Now, mountain uh, in the Israeli sense is different from mountain in the Western America sense. We look east and we think, now, that's a mountain. And if you go to Israel, you'll see the Mount of Olives and you'll be very disappointed. If you think in terms of mountains like this. But you'll also be very relieved because as Jesus climbed the Mount of Olives, so you will too. And you'll be glad that it's not almost 11,000 feet. It's more of a hill. In some cases, it's precipitous, but it's just kind of a rounded hill. It's what it's like around Jerusalem. Okay, on with this. He sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. If anyone asks you, Why are you loosing him? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he said. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own garments on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The date, as close as we can ascertain, was April 6th, beginning in verse 28. April 6th, 32 A.D. It's a very important date. Just tuck that in your mind. April 6th, 32 A.D. Passover is coming up. Jerusalem has swelled in population. In fact, Jerusalem has swelled probably five times its normal population. You know what it's like during the first week of October here when the balloon fiesta comes? And people from all over the world gather here. You can't find a hotel room. It was like that in Jerusalem, only worse. They didn't have hotels and inns, and the inns they had were anything but a holiday in those days. The Jewish historian Josephus said that around this time, on one Passover, they killed 256,000 lambs at Passover. And the stipulation is that there would be one lamb to every ten people. If your family was too small, you'd bring in others. So that there was a minimum of ten people. Well, 256,000 lambs. There was over two and a half million people in Jerusalem. The city probably had 400,000 people to 500,000 people normally at best. So this city swelled. So you had people staying at people's homes, sleeping out on their porches, uh, staying around the cities of Jerusalem, every male within 20 miles of Jerusalem. Uh, by law was required to show up in Jerusalem on Passover three times a year. Uh, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles around September, October. So here they are at Passover. They're sleeping out in the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and Bethany, Bethphage. It's packed. As you approach Jerusalem, you notice that the city has been prepared. The streets have been fixed. The bridges have been repaired. All of the tombs have been whitewashed so that you don't touch them and get ceremonially defiled. And as you approach Jerusalem, there's a wonderful aroma that's coming from the temple area. This huge court of several acres and this big altar of sacrifice that if you couldn't see it, you could smell it. The aroma, oh, have you ever smelled barbecued lamb? Imagine that all day long for several days. 256,000 lambs being slaughtered, many of them being roasted as sacrifices in the morning and evening. And you'd come to Jerusalem and it's like, wow, that smells great. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's April 6, 32 A.D. The Passover lambs, you can, 
uh, hear the bleeding of the sheep, smell the aroma. In fact, the history books tell us that a conduit stemming from the altar of sacrifice ran underneath the Temple Mount into the Valley of Kidron, which was uh, housing a little stream of water called the Brook Kidron. And the blood of the animals would go through the conduit, empty out into the Kidron Brook, and blood was flowing. It was like a river of blood that was flowing in the Kidron Brook. And Jesus would go over that bridge, over the Kidron, over the blood of the lambs that was being slain on his way up to Jerusalem. Very prophetic. This lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, himself would be killed during this Passover season. And so he comes into Jerusalem and notice all the details he predicts. He stops, he says, okay, I got a little job for you guys to do. You're going to go to a village next to you. There's going to be a colt, which is a colt of a donkey. And you're going to find him tied and loose him. And somebody's going to say to you, what are you doing? This is what you tell him. And when you tell him that, he'll let you have it. All of these details. He's a detailed kind of a God. Which of the two disciples went? We don't know. It could be any of the disciples. I personally picture... Peter and John going. Why? Well, we know Peter, James, and John were a little bit closer to Jesus on some occasions than the others. They were in the garden doing, uh, supposed to be a little bit closer than the rest. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. I kind of picture Peter and John. We don't know for sure. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but it's fun to think of Peter and John going to get that cold, isn't it? You can hear them talking as they're walking down the road. John says, now, Let me do the talking, uh, Peter. Uh, You've gotten your foot in your mouth a few times. And besides that, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, remember. Peter's saying, wait a minute, John. I'm the blessed one. Remember, he didn't say, blessed are you, John. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You remember back in Matthew 16 when he said that. (laughs) And so that's how I picture going. They go, just as Jesus said... The owner asks them this question. They answer the question the way Jesus told them. They get this colt. They bring it to him. He is set on it. They spread their clothes in the road. And the whole multitude, verse 37, of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Now let me tell you something. This is a planned event. This was planned in history past, in eternity past. It wasn't like Jesus came to Jerusalem and said, you know, golly, I'd like to have a donkey ride. I wonder if they have them here like for a dollar. You know, they have them in Jerusalem today like for a buck. You can have a little camel ride or a donkey ride. This was a planned event. This was fulfilled prophecy. And you should go back and read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet predicted and the Jewish rabbis explained it as being messianic. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. For behold, your king is coming to you lowly and having salvation on a donkey or riding a donkey, lowly and riding a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. That is why in verse 39, the Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know why? Because they knew Zechariah 9.9. They knew that this was a messianic anthem the people were offering. They knew that the people were publicly saying, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Jewish messianic prophecy. And they were opposed to it. They were students of the prophets. Rebuke your disciples at once. But this was a planned event. Back in verse 37 and 38, the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. They were saying, or actually they were chanting in a loud cry or song, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, I can't imagine a songless Christian. Can you? I can't imagine a Christian who doesn't sing praise to God. It doesn't seem to fit. There's so much to sing over. The Bible is so filled with exhortations. And we have so much to sing about. So much to rejoice over. Well, I don't know the words. Learn them. You get the hang of it. 
Oh, I don't have a good voice. Hey, you're not auditioning. Make a joyful. Anybody can make a noise. Some of you, when you sing, do make a noise. Great. Make it unto the Lord. Let it be a noise offering unto God. You're not going to stand before God and say, you know, you sang a little flat that night over at Calvary. Wish you would have just, you know, quieted it down. I love to see people sing and rejoice. Love it. You know who your audience is? God. You know when the praise band comes up here and leads worship? They're not singing for you. They're not trying to impress you. And they don't care if you say, oh, I didn't like that song. It was too fast. It was too loud. You're not the audience. God is the audience. That's why we don't have a choir here. You are it. You're the choir. God is the audience. We sing to him. And God isn't concerned about the pitch of your voice any more than he is about your earring, your orange hair, or your tattoos. God is concerned about the attitude of your heart. That's what he wants. So sing with the right attitude of heart. They sang, blessed is he. Now, this mob will change its tune. There is something about crowds, mob instinct, herd instinct. Uh, If everybody's doing it, let's do it. Who wants to stand out? This same crowd, not all of them, but some of them in a few days, will be the very people who will say, crucify that one that we praised the other day. Because the people of Jerusalem will say that. The crowd will say that. The mob will be turned. The mob will be changed. I love Jesus' response when they said, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You've almost got to go to Jerusalem to get the picture here. Because what is not a stone in Jerusalem? Uh, Israel doesn't have soil with rocks. It has rocks with a little bit of soil here and there. And around Jerusalem, everything is a stone. There are stones everywhere. The Mount of Olives is like pure stone. The Temple Mount is it's just rock, stone, everything, everywhere. The Phillips translation says, if these hold their peace or if these be quiet, the stones will immediately burst out cheering, is the translation. Burst out cheering. Every time I read this, I wish, it would have been great, you know, just for Jesus to tell the crowd, okay, quiet down. Don't say a word. Don't sing a word. Listen. To have these stones sing. So when we go to Jerusalem, we, uh, people say, oh, I want to buy a souvenir. You, know, well, you don't need much money. Just go to the Mount of Olives and pick up a rock. Bring it home. And when people have to see it on your desk, they say, what's that rock? Oh, this is one of the stones that didn't cry out. (laughs) Say, what do you mean? What does that mean? And it's a great witnessing tool, just a a rock. This is one of the stones that didn't cry out because the disciples didn't hold their peace. But it would be great if, you know, (laughs) she said, cool it, boys. Hit it, rocks. You know, first, (laughs) a rock concert right there in Israel. (laughs) Now, as he drew near, he saw the city. And he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I really wish we had more time tonight to uncover And we'll do it next week to uncover the incredible nature of what Jesus is saying and what he is holding Israel nationally accountable for and what this means to their future and also how this ties into their history, a prophecy out of Daniel chapter 9. And they were held accountable to know a date in their history, April 6, 32 A.D., So just remember, April 6, 32 AD, you might want to jot it down in your Bibles or write it down in your notes, and we'll explain just how significant this day is when we meet next time. But 
there's a, a change in mood. It's like the, the, the camera pans off of the crowd who is being elated and they're singing and they're so happy. Jesus is saying he's the Messiah. Coming in, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Now the camera pans and it's on Jesus singularly. He's coming down the Mount of Olives and he stops. And he gazes over to Jerusalem and instead of rejoicing, there's weeping, lamenting. The crowd is watching as Jesus is there crying over a city. It's an odd response, they think. Such joy, such elation. The Messiah has come to Jerusalem. Certainly there must be a a great rejoicing in heaven. Why these tears? By the way, you might get the picture in your mind that Jesus looks at Jerusalem and he's just standing there silently. As tears well up in his eyes, they get misty and they just sort of fall down. The Greek language is very picturesque. It says, Jesus burst into tears and began to be weeping audibly. It was a lament that Jesus made over Jerusalem. Like Jeremiah made so many years before as it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Jesus is bursting out and he's audibly weeping. What an odd response for a Messiah to make. You'd expect him to rejoice. Why? It's the response of a husband who lost his wife. And it was like that, wasn't it? It was like the wife of Jehovah, as the Old Testament calls Israel, had rejected her husband. And this is the lament of the husband weeping over the death of his bride, who has rejected him. And Jesus looks into the future, into 70 A.D., and sees that Jerusalem will be surrounded by Roman enemies and Jerusalem will be destroyed. That's why Jesus said to the women when he was walking on the way to the cross, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. Israel had rejected Jesus nationally. What did all that mean? We'll discover that next time. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, It is written, My house is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus said to them, If you had only known. Here I am, but if you had only known. But they didn't know. They weren't aware. Their tradition, their preconceived notion, their hard hearts had blinded them. Jesus wanted a relationship with them. He came into his own. His own received him not. I wonder if that's the story of so many. I know it's the story of many. Is it the story of some here? Has Jesus come close to you? Has he been knocking at the door of your heart? Has he visited you? Has he come near? Has the invitation gone out? But you've refused it? Has he been knocking and you say, I don't want to open the door. I'll live my life the way I want to live. Jesus, just bug off. You maintain your own space. How tragic. Enough to make him weep. As Jesus Christ loves each and every one of you as much as he loved anybody else in history or the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus came to offer himself up for you. And for you to say no to God would elicit the same response that Jesus had when Jerusalem said, we don't want you to reign over us. We will not have this man reign over us. How about you? Will Jesus reign over you? Have you been coming to church for a while, looking from afar, examining checking it out, watching people. You hear the gospel, and maybe you've heard it in the past, and you say, well, that's, I'm kind of moved by that. I'm a little emotionally touched, but I, I can handle that. I know how to deal with my emotions and push them down. And then you hear it again, and you've come, and you've heard it again, and you've heard other appeals. You've watched Billy Graham on television, or you've come to crusades. And pretty soon you've been able to manage the conviction. Every time you hear that knock at the door of your heart, it's not as prominent anymore. It's a little bit softer. It's like the porch has been moved out a little bit. The house has been extended. I hear that knock. It's way, way. Oh, yeah, I hear it. 
But pretty soon you hear it and your heart becomes so callous, it's all academic anymore. That's a sad day. And if Jesus Christ is probing your conscience, your heart, and he's trying to draw you to himself, now's the time to do it. Now's the time to say, I surrender. I will have you reign over me, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, even as Jesus came to Jericho and called Bartimaeus, even as Jesus came to Jericho and called Zacchaeus, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just watch from a tree, but we'd have you into the home of our hearts. We'd get close. We would dine with you. You desire closeness. You desire intimacy. You desire rich relationship. Lord, I pray that we would not say, don't reign over me. I pray that we would not say, I won't have you. I I won't receive you. Rather, I pray that our hearts would be so wide open that the conviction we're feeling right now, we'd respond to it and make Jesus Christ the Lord, the Savior of our lives, the lover of our souls. And we would now walk in your plan as your disciples, absolutely surrendered to you. We know, Lord, that you created us for yourself, for your pleasure. And we know that as creatures, we find no pleasure in life until we fulfill that for which we were created. And so I pray, Lord, that many would come home tonight and that you would reign over them. As you are praying tonight, I know that God has been speaking. In the stillness of your heart, To some who are here. I know that he's been knocking on the door of your heart. You hear it. You sense it. You feel like God has been speaking to you lately saying, Give me your life. Give me your heart. I can can make it better. I can show you what life's all about. I can fulfill you. You've been able to manage that voice. But tonight, the knock comes again. The plea goes out. Will you respond? If so... And you're ready tonight to give your heart to God. And the Bible says, now is the day. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, hurry up or make haste. Don't think about it. Do it now. God would be saying that to you tonight. How many would respond? If so, would you raise your hand up and say, Skip, tonight I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to make him my Lord and Savior. I want to know that if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. 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 I die, I'm going to go to heaven.